I'm Jamie Duggood, one of the pastors here. And as Ryan mentioned before, we're doing a series where we answer some questions that you have asked us. And um, uh, the one I got was Presbyterianism, what is it and why should I care? Okay, actually I chose it. <laughs> and I'm gonna read a passage, which is you know, one of the more important passages in a second, but before I do, let me go straight at that why should I care question. Because I think this is a good moment historically for realizing that we need to care at least a little bit how our church is structured and run. And I can't think of a better example of that than this article from World Magazine about James McDonald, former pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel. Here's a quote from the article. Church bylaws amended in 2015 provide for the removal of the senior pastor, but only by a unanimous vote of the full elder board and the executive committee on which McDonald sits. The bylaws also grant the senior pastor the power to act in an emergency to suspend any elder board member subject to earliest possible ratification by the executive committee. It seems that in this church, the pastor has about the same amount of power that Stalin wielded in the Soviet Union. That's an extreme case, and you can just imagine the sort of problems you run into if that senior pastor should happen to abuse their authority. But it's a good example of why we need to pay attention to how the church is run, at the very least for when we end up in these sorts of situations where somebody abuses their power. But also I hope we'll see by the end of today, just so that we can function well as a church uh, as we move along. So whether you're a convinced Presbyterian here today, and you're really excited to hear this, or whether you're a convinced non-Presbyterian today, uh, and would just like to learn a little bit about how to get along inside a Presbyterian church. I hope this is helpful to you. Let's start by reading Acts 15. That's page 923 in your few Bibles. I'll start from the first verse. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Then all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. So why care how the church is run and how it is structured? You know, one thing that stands out, given the article I read, is the problem of abuse. But it's also very practical for every Christian to understand something about how their church is run, because all of us participate in it in some way. Now, I know that some of us prefer to avoid this subject because there are many differences among Christians about how the church should be run. I will say, Scripture does teach how we ought to run the church. The main principles of Presbyterianism are, I believe, drawn from the Bible. But I don't think we can claim that Scripture is super clear on the matter. Some things in Scripture are clearer than others, and I think this is one of the examples of things that are not clear. Uh, and so in everything I say here, as much as I'm going to explain the Presbyterian viewpoints, uh, I want to encourage us all to charity with our brothers and sisters. We could think of some of the main differences in church government being Episcopalians who have bishops or Congregationalists who don't believe in the same kind of wider authority over, of, the, of the wider church over local congregations. Assume that when I tell you about Bible passages in support of Presbyterianism, that they probably have a reasonable different reading of the text, even if I believe that it's the wrong one. 
Understand that because I think that's important for engaging with, char- with charity here. Um, I made a whole series of videos in my Sunday school about the doctrine of the church. I'm not going to get into all of the details of ar- trying to argue the point from all the different sides because that's up on the YouTube. In fact, it's linked in the video description for this service. So if you're watching online, like and subscribe. And if you're here in person, you can go, t- go to the video after the fact. And, and if, you, if you want to hear more, there are videos on various different topics of uh, elders and different forms of church structure and how we might think about this passages from different sides. But for today, I'm mostly just going to focus on what is Presbyterianism and how can we best function at, together as a Presbyterian church. I'm going to focus on three points today. First, what is an elder? Because if you understand what an elder is, then you understand Presbyterianism. And we'll come back to that. Second point, how can we seek justice together as a community? Because the whole point of listening to what the Bible says about church government is that we could be structured and ordered according to God's word as a just community. And finally, the third point will be that Jesus Christ reigns as king in his church. You know, we have to come back to that one. We can't miss the most important church government position, and that is Jesus is king. But let's start with the first point. What is an elder? The first thing to say about the term elder is that it's an English translation of the Greek word presbyteros, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word zakain. And all of these words, they can just mean an old person. Um, You young people have to imagine a society where people respected their elders, as hopefully you do, but we do a lot less today, and where older people just naturally were in positions of leadership. However, the word gets this technical use for certain elderly men in the society who are appointed to positions of leadership. And it's from the Greek word presbyteros, elder, that we get presbytery, a council of elders that meet together, and Presbyterian, a system of church government based on councils of elders meeting together. So Presbyterianism is just elderinism, I suppose you could say. So what is an elder in the Bible? Where do they come from? That's actually kind of an interesting question because no matter which testament you start out with, elders are sort of just there. Uh, Right in Exodus 3, when God is speaking to Moses, having grabbed his attention as he was shepherding on the hillside, he tells Moses to go and gather the elders of Israel. It would seem that this is an institution that's just sort of organically grown up while Israel is in Egypt. But in Numbers 11... God tells Moses to select 70 of these elders, and he specially gifts them with the Holy Spirit to aid Moses in leadership. So the first important point to grasp is that God gives elders a special gift of the Holy Spirit that qualifies them for leadership. Um, We see the same thing in the New Testament. It continues right along. In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us about gifts of leadership and government, which are just some of the many gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to his church. 
And when we combine that with the requirements for being an elder that we find from Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it becomes clear that we don't just appoint elders in the church because we think that they seem like inspiring leaders or maybe because it feels like they'll push our political program for the church. No, we should be looking for the gifting of the Spirit, men whom God has uh, given to the church to lead it. We're not just doing what pleases us, but we're trying to discern the Spirit's work in our midst. So elders are gifted by God. But it's also true that they represent the particular people over whom they have authority. And those first Spirit-empowered elders, they were chosen from a group of leaders that had just sort of emerged organically in the community. God didn't just abolish the leadership structure he found in Israel, he took it up and sanctified it as part of his church. And if you read the Law of Moses, if you look through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll see the elders coming back and playing important roles in God's plan for the community. Another place we can see these elders is in Ezra 10. There, God's people were seeking to unwind the complicated effects of community-wide sin and it was take, looking to take days or weeks, if not months. And so the people said to Ezra, let our officials stand for the whole assembly. We can't all stay here in Jerusalem and work this out. So let our leaders represent us. Once again, no, this starts as a request from the people for their leaders to represent them in the work of leadership. And we can see this sort of principle in the New Testament too. In Acts 6, there's this complaint that the church's resources are not being distributed fairly. Specifically, Greek-speaking widows are not being taken care of. And so what do they do? Well, this is a chapter that's about the appointment of deacons, not elders specifically. But it, we do see this general principle that the, they select leaders that will represent this community. So first of all, the apostles don't pick the leaders. Instead, the apostles tell the people, you select the leaders, and then the apostles lay hands on them. So the apostles do have this role in appointing them, but the people select and the apostles appoint. Secondly, if you actually look at the names of the deacons, they're all Greek names, and one of them is actually said to have been a Gentile convert. What can we get, gather from this? Well, the leaders that were picked reflected the community that they were serving. They were from that community and therefore able to represent it well. This representative principle is why in Presbyterianism we think it's very important to elect elders. And there's a whole story about the Presbyterian Church in Scotland getting into fights with the government over and over about the fact that you can't give people a pastor or elders that they won't vote for. Elders need the consent of the people in order to govern. So we hold these things in balance. The elders are called by God, but also they represent the people. We need to put one other concept on the table here, the idea of the plurality of elders. If you go through these passages, one thing you'll notice is there's not like one top elder who tells all the other elders what to do. In our passage today, all the elders meet together with the apostles to make decisions. And, you know, if you look through the New Testament, sometimes you'll even find the apostles calling themselves a fellow elder with the people. Even the apostles call themselves elders at times. 
And this is fundamentally how we run our church as well. The elders as a plurality gather together to make decisions. We call the group of elders who meet together the session, that's our term for it. And even our pastors are technically a kind of elder. We call them teaching elders. Yeah, we do have a senior pastor who we ask to take sort of a leadership role. That's Ryan's job. Um, but even Ryan is under the authority of the session. We all are. He's not a bishop. Rather, the buck stops with the whole session. There's only one king in the church. And have you heard of him? I hope somebody, somebody's heard of him. Who's king in the church? Jesus, that's right. Jesus is king in the church. He's the only one who wields monarchical authority. One last principle for this first point is that elders, biblically, are subject to wider accountability for local authority. Back in Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, steps in to help him out. Moses is getting a little burned out, and his father-in-law steps in and says, listen, you can't do all of the judging of disputes in the community. Uh, and he helps him set up a whole system of judges, and these judges are going to deal with the lesser cases, and only if something's really hard is Moses going to deal with it, and that way he won't get burned out. And if we keep looking through our Old Testament, we see it come up uh, se several times that this was the system in Israel. Local judges, local elders would deal with decisions locally, but they could be appealed to a central court in Jerusalem. In the time of Jesus, that court was called the Sanhedrin. And then we get to the early church, and my understanding of Acts 15 is something very similar is happening here. Um, there's been an issue stirring up conflict in the church. I won't get into all the details of what it was, but the basic outline is that some Jewish believers are shutting out Gentile believers because they think that they should keep all of the ritual laws of the Mosaic Code. This has become such a big issue that all the apostles and the elders have to get together in Jerusalem to decide the matter. And you even see churches like Antioch appointing representatives like Paul and Barnabas and some other unnamed people to go represent them in Jerusalem as a church. Um, notice the authority this council claims in their decision. Actually, especially this phrase in verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. And the same language in verse 28, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Does that language sound familiar to you from anywhere else in the Bible? Well, it should because it's very similar to our Old Testament reading for today. In this story in 1 Chronicles 13, when David gathers all the leaders of Israel, he says, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God. And just to drive the point home a little more, our English Bible, it calls the group of elders that meet with David an assembly, the assembly of Israel. And in Acts, our English Bible calls this group of people the church. It talks about the whole church. But just to be clear, for Christians reading their Old Testaments and their New Testaments in Greek, this is the same word, ecclesia. Same word for assembly, same word for church. I think the implication here is that the ideal of Chronicles, that the whole people of God would come together and through their leaders gathering in assembly would make a unified decision that unifies the whole people, that's happening here in Acts 15 with the assembly of the apostles and the elders. 
Presbyterians understand this to mean that there's wider authority in the church than just the local congregation. Your session is also under authority. If an issue or complaint arises in the local church, then we have a presbytery, all of the elders from the local churches meeting together, to, and they have the power to authoritatively decide a conflict. But what about if there's a problem with what the presbytery does or a complaint? Well, then we have the General Assembly, which is a national gathering of representative elders from the churches, and they have the right to authoritatively decide an issue. Not to belabor the point too much, but I just want to point out the authoritativeness of the phrasing in verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Notice the wisdom in not laying a great burden on the churches in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. It's often wise for those wider bodies not to try to micromanage things. And I think we see that principle here. But nevertheless, laying... Laying a burden on somebody, laying a requirement on somebody is a pretty authoritative thing to do. And this council claims that the Holy Spirit is behind what they're saying. There's a normal expectation that the Holy Spirit is guiding the leaders to the truth. Well, like I said, if you want more details or arguments on the other side, uh, you can go check out the Sunday School videos I've linked. But let me just summarize the main points that we've covered so far. God's people are to be led by elders who are gifted by the Spirit and represent the people. Those elders exercise their authority jointly as a plurality of elders. And the actions of those elders are accountable to the wider church. If you understand those three points, you understand the basics of Presbyterianism. So that's our first point. But now our second point, how do we pursue justice in a Presbyterian church? How can you, even if you're just a member, whether you agree with a Presbyterian system or not, contribute to us being a just community? I think this is an important question. You know, in Deuteronomy 4, Moses tells Israel that if they keep God's law, then it's going to be a witness to the surrounding nations about who God is. And they're going to look at Israel and say, who is this God who gave them such just laws? Jesus says that his church is supposed to be like a city on the hill that the whole world can see. How the church runs matters because God desires that this community should reflect his justice and righteousness to the world. It's a challenging call, but a biblical one. And this includes everything that justice is. It includes corrective justice. This is what we might think of immediately. How do we deal with it when somebody does something really bad? That's part of it. It also, and you can, we read Matthew 18 as our New Testament reading, which kind of details the basic outline for that. It also includes distributive justice which we could define as as the fair distribution of economic resources and honor. That's what's happening in Acts 6. You have these widows who aren't being cared for. The economic resources of the church aren't being distributed in a fair way. And biblically, justice doesn't just end with money either. How honor is distributed in the community is at least as important. If we behave in ways that dishonor members of our community, 
If we shame someone who's poorer than us, if we engage in speech that denigrates women or ethnic minorities or other groups in the congregation, then we have a justice problem, even if it has nothing to do with money. So this is just an example of the kinds of things your elders are called to deal with, and hopefully you can see it's a pretty wide group of concerns. But what's your role as a member in the church? Well, let me give you a few thoughts for that. First of all, I suggest it's important for you to know your elders. Find out who your oversight elder is, if you don't already know. Say hi to them at church. Maybe even invite them over for dinner. Uh, seek to build a real relationship. They don't have to be your best friend or even your closest spiritual mentor. But if they know you, and they know something about your needs and struggles because it's their job to care about that, it's going to help them represent you and lead you better. It's also going to help prevent miscommunications and misunderstandings. So seek to know your elders. Second, know your rights and exercise them responsibly. As a member of Wallace, you are under the authority of the session of Wallace. As such, you have a right to know what actions your session takes at session meetings. And if you're a member in good standing, you have a right to complain to the presbytery about each and every action your session takes. Okay, so remember I said use responsibly. I don't want to hear that one of you went and got the minutes of the last session meeting and complained seriatim to every single action, okay? <laughs> um, please don't forget to exercise the right Responsibly, this is something for gross injustices and actions that have very serious consequences, not just an issue where you might have a difference of judgment with the session. It's also not a course of action to embark upon without seeking informal clarification first. Good to talk informally before filing a complaint. You got 60 days, just FYI, you got 60 days to file a complaint, so use the time well. Nevertheless, this check on Sessions power is important. Um, and if you ever feel you need to file a complaint, I'll help you do a good job of it. I will. That's a service I offer. Now, I'm, I'm, even if I think your complaint is foolish, and I might tell you that, you know, just like a good lawyer, I might tell you you have no case, and you probably shouldn't do this. But it's very important to me that you are able to exercise this right. And honestly, important to me to give you pastoral counseling if you find yourself in such a serious situation. So, know your rights, but exercise them responsibly. Finally, number three, fight your cynicism about the process. Fight your cynicism about the process. We live in a cultural moment that is very, very skeptical about authority and very, very quick to decide that it's being abused. And that's not all bad. There's a lot of bad authority that's getting questioned in this cultural moment. Um, abuses of authority do happen, and just having Presbyterian process doesn't fix that. It's something we have to deal with. But we should expect that Satan will try to create impatience and paranoia and cynicism about the process. And I'm saying this, by the way, as someone who has complained before. I've, I've been there, actually. And Satan tried to pull this over on me. Don't ever waltz into church conflict confident in your own rightness and your own 
fairness or Satan will sift you like wheat. There's nothing he likes more than to take someone who is partially right and use them as a whip to beat their brothers and sisters in Christ. Church conflict, it demands an attitude of humility, a readiness to find the log in our eye before we go after the speck in our brothers. It demands putting the actions and words of others in the most charitable light possible before criticizing them. And above all, it requires prayer. Prayer for God to lead you in wisdom, prayer for the good of the person you are in conflict with, and prayer for protection from Satan's devices. The times I have engaged in church conflict, I have felt the temptation of Satan on my heart so strongly. And this is why I say it so strongly to you. I'm not going to tell you the process will always work or that leaders will always be trustworthy. This is one of the things I like about Presbyterianism. We have a clear mechanism of complaint for just those sorts of situations. I will tell you that you should expect Satan to plant unjust complaints against the process in your heart. And if you want to legitimately critique it, you will need to wrestle through Satan's deceptions. So that's my second point. And let me just reiterate that this is a personal burden on my heart as a pastor, especially if there are aspects of church process that you have trouble walking through, I would love to help you. Please get in touch with me. Let me know. Okay. Third point, Christ reigns in his church through his spirit. Christ reigns in his church through his spirit. So, you know, if we, if we go back to that story in the Old Testament reading from 1 Chronicles 13, there's something interesting about it. I wonder if any of you picked up on it. You know, it's this one where David gathers together all the leaders of Israel, and what are they making a decision about? How, whether to bring up the ark. You know, the striking thing about this story is that it all goes terribly wrong. You know, maybe you remember it. Ryan preached this story when we were in 1 Samuel. In the chronicler's telling of the story, this council, which is the unanimous decision, is what immediately precedes this disaster with Uzzah and the ark, where uh, um, a man is struck dead because David and the people don't handle the ark the way God has commanded them to do it. I think it's so important that the chronicler decided we need to see this. Everything here seems to, to conform to the ideal of godly decision-making. All Israel is gathered together through their representatives. God's chosen king, David, is in their midst. Um, David builds consensus around his decision so that they come to a unanimous conclusion. The thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Wow, that would be great. That's what we want for our congregation meeting, for our session meeting, for our presbytery meeting. A unanimous decision. Perfect. And there's a sincere desire for their choice to be God's will as well. David says, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God. And yet... The decision they come to is not from the Lord, at least not fully. And that's because they didn't pay close enough attention to God's word. God had given them a law to tell them that only the Levites should carry the ark, but they hadn't been careful to follow God's law. David says later that this all happened because we did not seek him according to the rule. So they sought unanimous decision-making, they got everybody on board, and they even sought God. 
and attempted to reflect his will, but they didn't do it through careful attention to his written word. Human leaders, even following the right process, which I think for the chronicler, this is the right process, even sincerely seeking God's will, will not always make a decision that reflects God's will. This is super, super important to balance what Acts 15 says about the Holy Spirit speaking through human leaders. This is a very important biblical caution. Don't ever let somebody tell you the leaders of the church speak for the Holy Spirit without adding the qualification when they speak in accordance with the Word of God. All church authority is subject to the Word of God. You know, um, this, I know this episode with Uzzah is difficult for us. It's one of those hard passages in the Bible. It seems like, might seem like an arbitrary exercise of God's wrath. I'm not going to get into all of the difficulty of it, because I think Ryan did a good job preaching his sermon, so I'm not going to try to repeat that. But as we look at the way the chronicler tells the story, in particular, there's one very relevant lesson I think we can get from this, even as difficult of a story as it is. Leaders in the church are sometimes disobeying God the most precisely when they are claiming to serve him the most. Sin in the church can often come wrapped in the most theological paper. This is especially true when we are tempted to think it is up to us to defend God, to defend the church, to make his work succeed. Uzzah sees that ark totter and he thinks, oh no, God is going to fall over and faceplant in the mud. I better stop it from happening. Despite the fact that God is perfectly able to take care of himself, as the whole rest of the story of the ark demonstrates. If that doesn't just ring true in a year when we've heard leaders of a major evangelical denomination say, you know, we can't deal with sexual abusers because it would open us up to legal liability, we could be sued. It's the sort of thing one hears all too often from church leaders. If we deal with injustice in our church, it will distract us from missions. If we confront sin openly, think about what it could do to our reputation. We can get so concerned with protecting ourselves in our little corner of the kingdom that it clouds our vision and actually keeps us from doing the righteous thing. So if you're in church leadership, and by the way, I'm saying this to myself as well, Any recent seminary graduates here, you're included too. Keep your hands off the ark. Keep your hands off the ark. God doesn't need you to keep the kingdom going. He's got it. The kingdom doesn't stand or fall with you. You are called to faithfulness in the position in which God has put you. So do the right thing and let God worry about the consequences. Another passage that I think makes a similar point is in the book of Revelation. Um, You know, there, the Apostle John, among, you know, the other weird things he sees, he sees seven lampstands, and these seven lampstands represent the seven churches to which he's writing this letter, or rather, Jesus is writing the letter through John. But in the midst of the lampstands, he sees Jesus standing there. You know, in our system of government, like I said before, we have not replaced King David in the assembly of the people with a bishop or an archbishop or a pope. And there's a reason for that, because Jesus stands 
in the midst of the churches as king. Yes, it is normal for him to reign through his spirit, bringing agreement in the assembly of his appointed representatives. How Presbyterianism mostly works. Yet it is quite clear in Revelation that if a church lives long enough in unrepentant defiance of what Jesus has called them to, he will come and remove that lampstand. Jesus is not dependent upon the human authority in the church. Jesus is not dependent on Wallace Presbyterian Church. Jesus is not dependent on the Presbyterian Church in America. He can work apart from, despite, and against us if he needs to do so. Of course, this is a deeply challenging truth, especially for those of us who are called to leadership. But you know, I also find it a deeply hopeful one as well. Because the human leaders of the church often fail, even when they have good intentions, even with good Presbyterian process. But Jesus does not fail. In fact, when I think of our human weaknesses, our ornery quarrelsomeness, or our craven fear of conflict, our occasional laziness and negligence, all the things stacked up against us, the human opposition, the spiritual opposition, What's the point of even giving this whole church thing a try? Especially when we look throughout history and we see the failures of the church in the past, which are many. Why would we step out in faith that this is a place where justice can happen? I think it's because the truth about what the church is and the truth about what the church will be is contained entirely in the person of Christ and given to us graciously by his spirit. When human leaders fail, Jesus remains faithful. When the whole church ignores injustice, Jesus says he will act to call us to account. Jesus is the one who expressed his solidarity with the oppressed by dying a death of oppression. Jesus is the one who expressed his love for unjust sinners by dying for their forgiveness. Jesus is the one who calls us to repent. Jesus is the one who mercifully forgives us. Jesus is the one who pours out the new life of his spirit into us. And I think this is something that should be especially encouraging to us when we feel betrayed or when we feel not heard by leadership or when leadership gets something wrong. You know, ultimately, there is a higher court of appeal than the General Assembly of the PCA. And it's Jesus himself. And he understands our suffering, and he always acts as a just judge. I don't know what the story of our own congregation is going to be over, say, the next generation. What kinds of challenges of justice and fairness we're going to face in our community. What conflicts we're going to have to work through. I do know that not everything is going to be sorted out until Jesus comes back. We're not going to be a perfect city on a hill. We're going to have to wrestle with injustice in the church. But that's no reason not to expect God to reveal his justice among us in a new way. I think that's something we're actually called to strive for. But as we seek to do that, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And let's pray constantly for the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, he is the one who rules in his church. He is the one who will keep us on the safe path until the day he returns to establish his perfect justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as... 
people who stand before your throne and recognize our injustice. Like Isaiah, we come before you and realize that we are people of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. But we know what you've done in Christ. And we know that you are at work in your church, and so we pray that you would be at work here at Wallace, keeping us, helping us bear with one another in love, and helping us to, even though imperfectly, witness to your love and your truth and your justice to the surrounding world. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.